Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone, um, and welcome. We begin the readout tonight with a handshake in Geneva, a historic face-to-face -face meeting between two world leaders, U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin, representing two sides of one of the most significant and enduring conflicts of the 20th century, and who remain far from trusting partners today. For four years, America's relationship with Russia was perversely framed around a U.S. president who saw Putin not as a foreign adversary, but as an idol to be emulated. And so today it was against this very backdrop that President Biden opened a new chapter on Russia, a 180 degree pivot from the last administration aimed at reestablishing America's role as world leaders in the fight for democracy. Every generation has to reestablish the basis in this fight for democracy. I mean, for real. Literally have to do it. Each of the countries, we have our own concerns and problems, but we still, as long as I'm president, we are going to stick to the notion that we're open, accountable, and transparent. And I think that's an important message to send the world. The leaders also gave separate press conferences with President Biden asked, among many other things, about the string of cyber attacks linked to Moscow, which Putin today denied. I made it clear that we will not tolerate attempts to violate our democratic sovereignty or destabilize our democratic elections, and we would respond. You've spoken many times about how you have spent perhaps more time with President Xi than any other world leader. So is there going to become a time where you might call him Old friend to old friend. Let's get something straight. We know each other well. We're not old friends. Why are you so confident he'll change his behavior, Mr. President? Yeah, I'm not confident he'll change behavior. What the hell? What do you do all the time? So when did I say I was confident? You I said, said, I said what I said was, let's get it straight. I said what will change their behavior is the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. Okay, spicy Biden. Meanwhile, Putin's take was positive, calling the talks constructive. He also had to endure the unusual, unusual for Putin anyway, task of facing a free press, which might explain why the most memorable moment came from a reporter rather than from the source. The list of your political opponents who are dead, prisoned or jailed is long. Alexei Navalny's organization calls for free and fair elections, an end to corruption. But Russia has outlawed that organization, calling it extremists. And you have now prevented anyone who supports him to run for office. So my question is, Mr. President, what are you so afraid of? Come on, journalism. Putin, however, deflected throughout the presser, dismissing questions about Russia's treatment of Alexei Navalny, refusing to even say Navalny's name, while also invoking U.S. politics and answers about his own country suggesting that the United States was silencing dissidents, referring to the arrests of suspects in the January 6th attack. As for who is killing whom or throwing whom in jail, people came to the U.S. Congress with political demands. They're being called domestic terrorists. 
It goes to show the ways in which U.S. politics are steeped into life abroad. With Noor bin Laden, the niece of Osama bin Laden, outside the summit in Geneva, flying a Trump one flag from a boat. While inside the summit, one of the most ruthless autocrats of our time is defending American insurrectionists, echoing the rhetoric of America's Republican Party. As we often say on this show, this is indeed real life, weird and also dangerous. Joining me now from Geneva is Yamiche Alcindor, moderator for PBS Washington Week and PBS NewsHour White House correspondent. Also in Geneva, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, and Ben Rhodes, former deputy national Hello, security advisor a, to President Obama. This, and Yamiche, I want to go to you first. Uh, from the White House's point of view, what was the goal um, of these last several days and what was the outcome? I don't know if we have Yamiche. Okay, Ben. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go with you, Ben. First, we're gonna start with you first. Just assess for us for a moment. Uh, you know, I called him Spicy Biden today. Biden was really very definitive in not allowing the media to try to. You know, the Fox News reporter tried to frame she, uh, uh, President Xi, as a friend, uh, which is a sort of a narrative uh, on the right. Um, but he also, I thought, was very strong in saying to reporters afterwards in, in this scrum. Look, we, we've got a problem, um, you know, reasserting the importance of democracy. And this is a this is a challenge for Western nations around the world. What do you think the outcome was of the meeting with Putin uh, and the aftermath? I mean, I think it was an incredibly important piece of business, Joy, because essentially what he's doing is after four years of Vladimir Putin getting a complete pass from the president of the United States, he was going there to lay down some markers. Uh, it is very telling to me that the bulk of that meeting was the small meeting, just the two presidents alone with their secretary of state and foreign minister. And I think he was laying it out for him. Here are my concerns on cyber attacks. Here are my concerns with respect to the treatment of Alexei Navalny and the opposition. Here are my concerns about Ukraine. And not aiming to negotiate detailed agreements there, but aiming to lay down those markers and deliver some warnings that if we don't see some progress on this, you might have a response from us in terms of the U.S. using our offensive cyber capability. Uh, and I think he was also highlighting for Putin, look, I just came out of a G7 and a NATO where the world's democracies are circling the wagons again here. And now let's be very clear, Joy, this isn't going to solve all our problems with Vladimir Putin. Vladimir yeah. Putin has been consistently a bad actor. But I think what he's going to do is Biden has laid this down and say in six months or a year, if we don't see progress or we see Russia continuing to take these actions, he can refer back to that conversation that they had in Geneva and say, this is why I'm now taking an action. And I think he got a little annoyed at times with the press because they try to frame it as a kind of performance art, um, the performance art of summetry or, you know, are you chummy with this guy or chummy with that guy? And Biden's yeah. there like, no, this is deadly serious business, literally life and death issues being discussed here. And, and I think he was very careful to not overly raise expectations and say one summit's going to solve all these problems. Uh, and he wanted to put that in context for people in this country and around the world. Yeah. And he also was very clear about telling the press, I'm not going to negotiate with you or in front of you. You know, we're going to negotiate behind the scenes. He, he, he you know, he, he definitely uh, he'd had his Wheaties this morning uh, or whatever. If, they, if you can get Wheaties over there in Geneva, um, uh, Professor McFall, um, Michael McFall, thank you for being here. Um, l let me ask you a similar question, because, you know, sure. Russia is not the equal of the United States in terms of its economy. You know, uh, our friends on Morning Joe this morning put up a chart which was pretty definitive. I mean, they are a small economy, smaller than in the Canadian economy. They really, they're an oil exporter, you know, they're sort of like, a, you know, a sort of a grander Mississippi. They don't have a, they don't have a lot going for them in terms of actual strength. What they do have is a huge nuclear stockpile, bigger than ours, and they sell arms. 
Why is it important to give them the stage next to the United States president at all? Well, I don't think you need to give them the stage. And I thought it was very appropriate that they didn't have a joint press conference today. That was smart, uh, in part because it gave our American journalists a chance to ask Vladimir Putin some very tough questions. That wouldn't have happened if they were together. But you have to talk to the president of Russia, no matter who he is, and the general secretary of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, back in the Cold War, because they are a nuclear superpower. The United States and Russia are the only two countries in the world that can blow up each other and the planet. And so we need to cooperate and we need to talk about that, as they called it today, strategic stability talks. We're the only two countries in the world that have those arsenals. That's why we need to meet together. The second point, the Joy, I want to add, you're right about the economy. Russia is, you know, 11th uh, in the world, maybe six if you, you do purchasing power parity. But the cards that Putin has, he's willing to play in a very revisionist way. He's willing to invade countries, annex territory, send his air force to prop up Mr. Assad and to use his cyber agents to undermine our democracy, as we learned uh, in the last two presidential elections. And so he is, I think, a very difficult actor on the international system today and not just engaging him as President Biden did today in Geneva. That's right. But now we need to have a containment strategy as well. Yeah. And we've now we, we do have Yamish now. We're, 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 we're getting everybody online in terms of trying to get all these long distance connections to work. Yamish, I want to play uh, a part of the press conference today when President Biden actually responded to a question that you raised um, to him um, on the crackdown of dissonance on dissonance in the Capitol. Take a listen. It's a uh, that's a ridiculous comparison. It's one thing for literally criminals to break through cordon, go into the Capitol, kill a police officer, and be held unaccountable. And it is for people objecting and marching on the Capitol and saying, you are not allowing me to speak freely. You are not allowing me to do A, B, C, or D. And so they're very different criteria. And just, just to frame that correctly, that essentially Vladimir Putin tried to draw a, a false equivalence uh, between his crackdown on dissidents in his country and the prosecution of the people who were uh, insurrectionists in the Capitol. Um, was, this, what is it, was it a surprise to folks in the White House, Yamiche, that that is where Putin went, that he went to Black Lives Matter, um, that he went to essentially a sort of Trumpian defense um, of what happened on January 6th? Was that a surprise to the White House? Uh, from, from what I can tell, White House aides and White House sources were expecting that President Putin would try to make a false equivalency because that's what he does. That's part of his playbook. It's trying to call out what he sees are human rights abuses, trying to call out crimes, trying to call out how people live and die in the United States, and to try to make these false equivalencies when, of course, they're wrong, when, of course, it is not the same thing as the human rights abuses that we're seeing in Russia and, and the jailing of opposition leaders and the, the flat-out um, denying of opposition parties from even being able to exist. So this was me really pressing President Biden here to, to talk about January 6th because you saw the Russian president try to use January 6th against the United States. So what you saw here, of course, was, yes, there were gains today. Yes, there was a constructive meeting here, both sides saying that it wasn't hostile. But what you also saw was real tension between these two leaders. And at the core of it was human rights. And this, I think, this, this answer by President Biden to my question, I think, really underscores that there is a lot still to be worked out in this relationship. President Biden said it's going to take 
three to six months to see what are the real fruits of this meeting. And I think human rights will also be at the center of that, assessing really how well this summit um, went on and what the actual consequences of it will be. Right. And so on the question of um, of sort of what will be consequences for the bad behavior uh, of Russia, there was in that last scrum this conversation, Yumish, between reporters and the president in which he said, clarified that what he was saying was he wasn't super overly optimistic that Russia would change its behavior, but that the way that nations, free nations react to Russia needed to be coordinated and needed to change. Was there what was the outcome of conversations with other G7 nations about how they will coordinate the way that they respond to Russian aggression? Did anything come of that during these meetings? Well, White House sources and President Biden himself says that these meetings with Russian, with European leaders, these meetings to really underscore that democracy needs to be working and needs to be united against autocracy. They're saying that that is a step forward in fighting back against Russia, fighting back against China. So there is what they would say, this united front against what Russia is doing and the human rights abuses. But I think there is this real question about Russia is going to be this international bad actor. President Biden said he, had, he didn't really issue an ultimatum, a threat. But then you heard President Biden say, look, I looked President Putin in the eye and said, do you want your infrastructure to be attacked? What would it be like if your oil fields were not working out? So there you saw President Biden taking a very, very firm stance and doing what he came here to do, which was really having a complete contrast to what we saw three years ago with former President Trump, who really, I mean, had some real cringeworthy moments, even for his own administration. To say the least. Yes, very. Uh, thank you. Well said. Well said. Michelle Sindor, thank you very much. Michael and Ben are staying with me. And up next on The Readout, after years of U.S. presidents looking into Putin's soul, hitting the reset button or just humiliating America like Trump did, President Biden is taking a much tougher approach to Putin. But will it make any difference? Plus, tonight's absolute worst claim to support the police. But they revealed how they really feel on the floor of the House. Meanwhile, some of those very same Republicans have some new revisionist propaganda about January 6th, claiming that it was an inside job, get this, by the FBI. You heard me right, folks. The readout continues after this. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. In taking a more confrontational posture toward Russia at the outset of his term, President Biden is bucking the trend set by his predecessors. That's because even before Trump, past administrations extended more of a benefit of the doubt to Putin than he necessarily deserved. For instance, when asked in a 2001 joint press conference whether Putin was trustworthy, George W. Bush famously and naively gave him this gushing endorsement. I'll answer the question. I looked the man in the eye. 
I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. Of course, Putin went on to crack down on the media, cancel elections, arrest his political opponent and invade the neighboring country of Georgia during Bush's eight years in office. Then came the Obama administration, which gave Putin another chance in what was dubbed a reset with Russia. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton even presented the foreign minister with a prop reset button to symbolize American goodwill. And while there was some progress on Iran and disarmament, Putin ultimately betrayed that trust again when he seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014 and then attacked our election in 2016. But any miscalculations on the part of President Bush or Obama were trivial compared to Donald Trump's total capitulation to Russia. That includes what was probably the most humiliating moment in the history of U.S. foreign relations, when Trump let Russia off the hook for attacking our democracy and took Putin's side over his own intelligence agencies in Helsinki in 2018. It was so disastrous that former Trump advisor Fiona Hill considered pulling a fire alarm to cut it off. First of all, you know, looked around to see if there was um, a fire alarm. But, you know, we were in a, um, you know, a rather grand building attached to the presidential palace of uh, the Finnish president who had lent it to us for the occasion. And I couldn't see anything that resembled a fire alarm. It was mortifying, frankly, and humiliating uh, for the country. After his three predecessors, Biden has no illusions about Putin. And that was apparent in his performance today. Back with me are former ambassador Michael McFall and Ben Rhodes. And joining us now from Moscow is NBC News senior international correspondent Keir Simmons. And, and Keir, you recently sat down uh, with Vladimir Putin himself. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us an assessment of what you saw in that press conference today, in which it seemed that Putin was determined to answer any question about his own country and his own administration of his country with things like Black Lives Matter and defending the January 6th insurrectionists. Is that yeah. something that you expected, given you, you had just recently having spoken with him? Hey, Joy, yeah, 100%. Look, I'm glad that you framed this as a, a more confrontational approach uh, from President Biden, because, look, this is a kind of war. There was a guy in the Russian delegation, uh, General Gerasimov, who ha invented something called the Gerasimov Doctrine, and it basically describes uh, going to war without going to war, if you like. Let me just read you a little bit from what that Russian general wrote some time ago about what it's about. He said, the rules of war have changed. Rules are no longer declared and, and having begun, proceed according to an unfamiliar template. So wars are no longer declared. So there you see Putin in that news conference denying, deny, deny, deny that you're doing it. An unfamiliar template. That's the propaganda. That's getting into the divisive issues in the U.S. and trying to, you know, lean into them. This is a kind of shadow war by Russia. Russia, we've said, is too weak vis-a-vis -vis America to go to war with America, you know, up front. But that is what the strategy is. And I think the first step in taking it on is to really recognize it. What I think you have to hope is that this is President Biden's first move on the chessboard, because what happened today is, is not even close to enough. Uh, Russia, the Kremlin behind me here, needs to feel like there will be real consequences. President Biden did say that. He also did say that we'll see what happens. So we'll see. Joy. Yeah. And, and uh, Ambassador McFall, you know, I, I feel like even some of the stagecraft 
it almost sort of played out what you're hearing here Simmons talk about. I mean, the fact that they didn't do a joint press conference, there was no opportunity for Putin to try to do that same act with Biden, you know, in Biden's presence. The fact that they remained separate, the fact that Biden actually made him wait. We talked about some of this stuff yesterday. It, those subtle messages, what does that do to Putin inside of his own country? Because it seemed like they were trying to put out images and pictures that would raise his stature because he didn't get to have a side-by-side, too many side-by-side opportunities. Well, in terms of the protocol and the scripting of this summit, uh, it's the anti-Helsinki and very appropriately so. I think the Biden protocol folks should get a lot of credit. You're right. Putin had to show up first. Uh, They changed that, by the way, in a last minute thing. That's great. Number two, they had note takers in the room. Secretary Blinken was there. Donald Trump didn't have any notes. We have no idea what he talked about uh, when he was one-on-one with Vladimir Putin. Fiona Hill, who you showed a clip of, she could have been there. She was his Russia senior advisor at the NSC. She wasn't led in that meeting. And then no joint press conference, which I think was a great thing because... President Biden didn't have to stand there and listen to the, the greatest hits of whataboutism that Vladimir Putin did in his press conference. That's all for us. But back home, let's be clear. Mr. Putin is coming back from Geneva feeling pretty good. Uh, he did a whole bunch of bad things. He annexed Crimea, propped up Assad, violated our sovereignty in 2016, tried to kill Mr. Skripal in the UK in 2018. And after all of those very bad behavior, he gets to have a summit here in Geneva with the most important leader uh, in the world. And then secondly, he then went to his press conference and he was having a good time. I watched it. I speak Russian. I could listen to both of it. And and for his folks that are not, you know, the most of those people are not independent press journalists. Um, he got to frame this as everybody, despite everything I do on the stage, they need to talk to me. Yeah, yeah, hard to avoid that point. Let me play a little bit um, for you, Ben. This was um, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and she was talking about how difficult it is to deal with uh, with this country. Take a listen. I think you can't be uh, either, you know, starry eyed or totally uh, turning your back. You've got to walk what is an uncomfortable but necessary path. How do we calibrate? How do we get them to do something? How do we stop them from doing something? How do we impose costs if they do go forward? And I think Joe Biden uh, has learned a lot, as we all have. I do think you need both an inside and an outside game. You need a public and a private uh, approach to Putin. And, you know, that's what Joe Biden uh, gets. And uh, Ben Rhodes, you lived that uh, through the administration. And I wonder if you think that, you know, getting the start to treaty was a big deal. Some of the, you know, advancements that were made during the Obama years were a big deal. Um, but do you think that essentially Putin has emerged really emboldened because, as you just heard Ambassador McFall say, he knows that we have to deal with him no matter what he does? Look, Joy, I mean, we have a 20 year history now with Vladimir Putin and we can see who he is, and he's not going to change. And so there's really two tasks in front of us. One is, what can you do through your foreign policy to try to contain what he's doing? You're not going to reverse what he's doing. You know, you're not going to make him stop trying to control events inside of places like Ukraine and Georgia. You're not going to make him suddenly open up Russia to a multi-party democracy. But you need to try to contain his excesses because he's aware that there's a cost or some deterrent on him, and because you have other countries with you in imposing those costs and consequences. I think more fundamentally, though, Joy, the elephant in the room here 
is that Vladimir Putin is part of a string of nationalist authoritarianism. It's kind of the vanguard of it. That is in this country right now. <laughs> There's a symbiosis. The reason that Russia could interfere in our 2016 election so effectively is because not only was the door being held open for them by Donald Trump, but because the kind of conspiracy theories and garbage that they were sending in their disinformation campaigns was the exact kind of thing that was on Breitbart or Fox News. The re you, know, you talk about January 6th. I, I don't doubt for a second that there weren't Russian trolls amplifying the big lie leading into January 6th. It wasn't just something that he decided to do today. It's something that he, you know, he is overlapping. He is symbiotic with the nationalist authoritarian trend in this country. So the other thing that we have to do is we have to fortify our democracy at home. You know, there's two sides to this coin, and we saw one side of it, which is an American president making us proud by standing up for democratic values and human rights on the world stage. But then we also need to come home and make sure that the toxins that Vladimir Putin exploits in our own democracy uh, were taken care of as well. You know, and Keir, that, that leads me to, you know, you're right. We can't control the way that Vladimir Putin behaves. He is who he is. We can only control our behavior on our end. Yeah. One of the things that we're seeing happen within American politics is sort of backing off, trying to dig into just what went down between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. There's still so many unanswered questions. This news from ABC News that Congressional Democrats say they're no longer seeking records of the former president's private meetings with the Russian leader, despite previous concerns that Trump tried to conceal mm -hmm. details of their con conversations. You as a journalist, these are the things that we both want to know. Um, what message yeah. does it send that we're not going to get answers to some of really probably the most important questions about the previous four years? What was said behind closed doors and on the phone between these two men? We're not, I guess we're just not going to know. No, it's a great question. And I have tried uh, with the Kremlin to push them to see if they will tell us. Well, I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it, that we have to ask the Kremlin to find <laughs> out what was going, what happened between a Russian leader and an American president. But I've tried. They won't do that. Uh, they talk about, you know, kind of diplomatic protocol and things. But I would say something else, uh, Joy, too. Just on this propaganda battlefield, if you like, you've got to be smart. So watch what President Putin did this week. He did this interview with us. And then at that news conference today, he had multiple U.S. reporters asking tough questions. And the Russian media here now are reporting, saying, look at our president. He's answering questions from the American media. Why wasn't President Biden doing that? Does President Biden not want to answer questions? Is he not prepared to answer tough questions? So, you know, I actually think there would be some value to an American president doing interviews with the American media, with the Russian media to get the message across. But you've just got to be smart. You've got to keep watching what Putin does, respond and fight back. Yeah, it is an information war. It is uh, fascinating. Uh, Michael McFall, Ben Rhodes, Keir Simmons, thank you all very much. Um, still ahead, honoring the heroic officers who risked their lives to protect lawmakers on Capitol Hill from an insurrectionist mob. Well, that seems like a no-brainer, right? The staggering hypocrisy of some Republicans on that very issue makes choosing tonight's absolute worst a no-brainer, too. And that is next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. 
For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. I rise today to honor the courageous men and women in blue. Our law enforcement officers are being harassed, targeted, criticized, mocked, defunded. I really do appreciate our, our men and women in law enforcement, our wonderful Capitol Police, all of our law enforcement. Republicans love the police and they love showing their support to the public, whether it's for National Police Week or the hashtag back the blue or just a general dig at Democrats. But everyone you see on your screen right now voted against awarding congressional gold medals to the police who defended the Capitol during the insurrection. That's 21 Republicans in total who decided to vote no just so they can score political points with their rabid base. With Lauren Boebert claiming the bill is playing partisan games and Marjorie Q. Green, along with others, taking issue with the word insurrection in the bill about protecting them from the insurrection. This is a woman who actually suggested awarding congressional medals of honor to the police who, quote, protect America from Black Lives Matter, just not the police who risk their lives to protect her on January 6th. Margie Q also gave airtime today to the latest conspiracy theory from Tuckums Carlson tweeting about his latest tirade last night, blaming the FBI for organizing the Capitol attack. It's a theory he sourced from the extremely well-known, super objective and very important news source, Revolver News, which led him to raise the question of whether some of the indicted co-conspirators named in the insurrection indictments could possibly be government officials. And we won't force you to listen to him or the many leaps in logic it takes to get to this point, because it should go without saying that, nope, 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 not how the FBI works. As Aaron Blake points out, legal experts say the government literally cannot name an undercover agent as an unindicted co-conspirator. But while it's always tempting to make Tucker go through some things, he's not tonight's absolute worst. Nope, that dubious distinction goes to those 21 Republicans who voted against awarding those medals to the people who protected their very lives, simply because they refused to admit that the violent hang Mike Pence, Trump MAGA insurrection actually happened. Take Congressman Andrew Clyde, who claimed the insurrectionists were just like tourists. We'll have more on him and his utter disrespect for the police after the break. You didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th. You would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. Former Georgia Republican Congressman Andrew Clyde, who called the insurrectionists tourists, even though there was actual photographic evidence of him barricading the House chamber doors. Not only did Clyde vote against awarding Congressional Medals of Honor to the Capitol Police, but Congressman Eric Swalwell tweeted today, get this, that Capitol Police Officer Michael Fanon, who was attacked by the insurrectionists, ran into Clyde today. He introduced himself as someone who fought to defend the Capitol and put out his hand to Congressman Clyde, who refused to shake it. Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger said he called Fanon and confirmed this story. The Washington Post reports that Fanon came to the Hill today, the day after 21 House Republicans voted against the gold medal resolution in an effort to meet them and tell his story. He happened upon Clyde in an elevator. Now, we tried to get a comment from Congressman Clyde, but so far no response. 
But I am joined now by California Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell. He's a 2021 impeachment manager and is a member of the House Committees on Intelligence and Homeland Security. Congressman, when my producers told me this story, <laughs> I had to go and look at your Twitter feed to verify it, even though I trust my uh, producers inherently. I needed to read it for myself. Then I read Adam Kinzinger's retweet. Unbloody believable. I, I, I'm just going to let you comment. How? How can that be possible right. that this officer who's been on TV a lot, nine whole minutes of him talking on CNN are available so everybody knows who he is? I, I, your comments on, on uh, Clyde. I, I don't get it. Joy, to honor Donald Trump, you now have to dishonor the police. That's the only explanation I have for it. Uh, officer Fanone and Officer Harry Dunn stopped by my office uh, earlier today, just unannounced. They just they popped in uh, and chatted with them for a while. They told me how much it hurt to watch the vote yesterday where 21 Republicans voted against giving these hero officers the gold medals. And they said they wanted to embark on going to those offices uh, to meet the members of Congress, tell them about their experience, and, and hopefully change their minds. And, and so Fanon called me about 20 minutes later after he left my office, and, and he was just enraged. He said, like, is this really how it works around here? Uh, the other part of this, uh, Joy, I only had you know a couple hundred characters in the tweet. He said that Congressman Clyde, actually, after he refused to shake his hand, pulled out his cell phone and started recording Fanon like he was some sort of criminal uh, that he had to document the interaction. Uh, it, that's just where these guys are right now. I saw Clyde on the floor, scared for his life, as all of us were. And I saw the brave officers who put their lives in front of ours and everyone else in that building. And this is just no way to treat them. Unbelievable. Yeah, let me ask you this. Let's just go back through this again. Did On the day of the insurrection, did Congressman Clyde go out and greet the protesters and high five <laughs> them and take selfies with them because they were just tourists? Did he go and greet them? No, I was actually grateful for what he did. He went and helped the Capitol Police barricade the main door into the House floor, which was actually that was heroic of him because he saw with his own eyes. He was up close and personal. But then what happens? Time passes. Donald Trump says it was just a nice day at the Capitol. And that's the new big lie that you have to accept. And by the way, you know who also who also did not go and uh, confront the protesters, despite telling us just days before that she was going to her, bring her big gun to the, ca to the Capitol? Lauren Boebert. She had that video mm -hmm. two days before the insurrection that she was going to bring her gun onto the floor. No, she mm -hmm. ran for her life. And you know who defended her? People like Harry Dunn and Mike Fanone. That's why they are worthy of our gratitude and worthy of those gold medals that Ab they are all voting absolutely. against. I mean, absolutely. Uh, th this is the job we actually want police to do to defend and protect people's lives. Like, this is what we want from police. Let me play for you Paul Gosar, another person who I don't know if you want to tell me if he was, did he, did Paul Gosar go out and greet the um, insurrectionists? Did you see, go, okay. No, uh, no. Here's, <laughs> here's, go, here's Gosar uh, talking about um, one of the people who was killed during the insurrection. Why hasn't that officer that executed Ashley Babbitt been named when police officers around the country are routinely identified after a shooting? So it seems to me that now what Republicans are doing is trying to not just ignore these officers, refuse to honor them, but now also vilifying them. When you saw the police officers who had their guns trained on the doors, why did they have their guns trained on the doors of, for instance, the speaker's lobby? From because your point of view. The, the, well, and I was receiving the Capitol Police alerts right before that of what they did know, which was that uh, pipe bombs were found 
uh, live pipe bombs were found, uh, that there were armed people uh, coming into the capital, that intelligence had shown uh, on websites that people intended to bring their firearms to the capital that day, and the mob had broken through five different perimeters. The last line was where Andrew Clyde stood, and just 100 feet on the other end of where Andrew Clyde stood, where Miss Babbitt was killed, uh, was the other line where that officer had to result, resort to the you know deadly use of force to protect the dozens of members who were still on the floor. That officer is a hero. He saved lives. He's not an executioner, as Republicans are uh, describing him as. And let me ask you this. If Ashley Babbitt, who was a, a military trained, you know, trained by the United States tax dollars to be a military, you know, she obviously knew how to use a gun. She, she knew how to do combat. If she had gotten through that door, the speaker's door, and she and all of that crowd that were screaming on the other side of the door, if they'd gotten through, what would have been on the other side of that door? They would have killed my colleagues. Uh, and I saw that mob. Uh, I saw the colleagues who were left behind, uh, who were the least mobile, and we were trying to figure out ways to, to get them out uh, because uh, it would require a stairway uh, exit. Uh, and so you would have had the least able to defend themselves uh, overrun by that mob, uh, Joy. Ashley Babbitt was the tip of the spear uh, of that mob. Uh, as Officer Fanone described, when he interacted with the mob, they tried to strip him of his gun. If that mob had gotten around the, the final police officers who were there, uh, they would have done the same thing, uh, and, and you would have seen dead members of Congress. So uh, God bless last, that officer who saved us. My last question, if the name of that officer were to be released, what do you think might happen to that officer, given the fact that people on the right who support Donald Trump are threatening to kill people who are just in the business of counting votes, people who work in elections? Would it endanger that officer's life to release his name? It would absolutely put a target on his back. And by the way, that officer has been cleared uh, and that shooting has been deemed uh, as, you know, a lawful, unfortunate uh, shooting. And, and Joy, so now we have a, a Republican Party, uh, you know, today, by the way, uh, over uh, double digits voted against recognizing Juneteenth. So it's a pro-slavery, anti-police party that is rolling with the cop killers right now. That's where we are uh, here in Washington, D.C. Congressman, we spent a lot of time talking about police and, and, you know, issues of police abuse. The Capitol police officers who defended the Capitol are the ideal of the way that we wish police would behave all over the country and the way a lot of police actually do. They were brave. They did their job. They defended you. They defended your staff. They defended every member of Congress. God bless them. They deserve those medals. And if you That's voted right. against them, then you know what? Shame on you. Um, That's right. Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you very much. Up My next, pleasure. after Thanks. taking us. Cheers. After taking a successful stand against the new voter suppression bill in their home state, Texas lawmakers were in Washington today to meet with Vice President Harris and Democrats on Capitol Hill. One of those Texas lawmakers joins me next. Stay with us. Let me begin with one immutable fact. The 2020 election was the most secure election in American history, period. But that's not stopping Republicans from pushing the big lie of election fraud and laying the groundwork to steal future elections. Senator Chuck Schumer has reaffirmed that the Senate will bring the For the People Act, which would make voting easier, increase election security, reduce the power of big money in our elections and mandate independent redistricting to the floor next week. South Dakota Senator John Thune, speaking on behalf of all Republicans, said this bill needs to die and die quickly. And not helping matters are Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. But Democrats outside of Washington, D.C. are pulling out all the stops to turn up the heat on these obstructionist Democrats. 
Yesterday, a delegation of Texas Democrats who stood together to block Republicans from passing a dangerous voter suppression bill for now traveled to Washington to ask Democrats for help during their weekly lunch. Senators Manchin and Cinema did not attend. Manchin's office told NBC News he had another meeting. Today, the Texas Democrats have met with Vice President Harris. What we are seeing are examples of an attempt to interfere with that right, an attempt to marginalize and take from people a right that has already been given. We are not asking for the bestowal of a right. We are talking about the preservation of a right. That is the right of citizenship. And it's that fundamental. And late today, five members of the Texas delegation were able to sit down with Senator Manchin to talk voting rights. And in that meeting was Texas State Representative Chris Turner, who joins me now and who is our first non-staff guest. It was the first Lawrence O'Donnell and then you. So congratulations on being our first on-set guest I'm honored. Thank in the you COVID era. Me. So let's talk about, first of all, the fight that you all mounted in Texas. It was, I think, heroic for a lot of people to see you all stand up. How permanent um, is your ability to stop that law in Texas? What happens next? Well, it's not permanent, which is why we're here in Washington, D.C. We need federal help to stop Republicans in Texas and around the country from passing these suppressive laws, these discriminatory laws that make it harder for people to vote. We need Congress to act. We need the president and vice president to act, and they're doing everything they can. Yeah. Uh, and our, that was our message on Capitol Hill today. So let's get right to this Manchin meeting. Uh, Manchin was not at your previous meeting. Um, he, he, I guess he had some other meetings. We don't know what those were as of now, but you met with him today. What did he say to you? Look, he was uh, very gracious. Uh, he was very generous with his time. We met for about an hour, and um, he we had a robust discussion about voting rights, and he uh, made clear his commitment to uh, making sure all Americans have the ability to cast a ballot. He talked about his experience as a Secretary of State and how they used to have competitions to see who, what state could get the biggest turnout, and he believes in that. Um, he, you know, he had some concerns, he said, with H.R. 1, and he put out some information today with some suggested changes he's proposing, uh, which I've not had a chance to fully review all of that yet. Mm -hmm. um, he, we also talked about the Voting Rights Act and the importance of passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and H.R. 1 uh, so that we have robust protections. Here in, in, in Texas, we need the Voting Rights Act back so we can have the preclearance mechanism to stop some of these discriminatory laws mm -hmm. uh, that we've not been able to stop since the Shelby County decision. Well, I have a list here of uh, at least what was been, has been reported to be the, the potential changes that Senator Manchin is proposing. There's some troubling stuff in here. It would codify what we've seen state by state as these voter ID laws, which it's not that people of color can't get an ID. It's that it can be expensive. It can be difficult to get to where you can get them. There are all of these reasons that people generally do not have the kind of ID that, you know, in Texas you want. They want you to have, for instance, you know, a, a gun permit or whatever. Right. People may not have it. Um, it would also codify not allowing people to vote absentee unless they had a, quote, excuse, meaning affluent people who summer in Florida or winter in Florida could vote absentee, but not average everyday Texans. If those are the changes, would putting John Lewis's name be appropriate if that's if those are the kinds of changes that are made? And would that help Texas? Yeah. Well, so when we talked about those uh, some of those issues with with the senator and we explained to him on voter ID uh, in Texas, we have such a restrictive voter ID law that, you, as you say, you can hunt with or you can hunt with you can vote with a hunting license, yeah. but you cannot vote with a state-issued uh, college ID. Right. He, the, the senator was shocked to learn that. 
and he thought that was uh, completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And he expressed his opposition to policies like that. So, uh, you know, it'd be my hope that uh, he would be open to conversation going forward. He's certainly open today uh, to where we could say, OK, look, this is these are the circumstances we're facing in Texas and these other states. We need federal legislation to address those specific circumstances. So I think the more we can get into the details of some of these things, yeah. perhaps we could get somewhere. And Representative Turner, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Juneteenth. Uh, the law, I believe, was yeah. just uh, passed through the House. And I know that uh, she said uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, it's been a big part of her push. What does it mean that at the same time we're making Juneteenth a national holiday, you have states, including your home state, mm-hmm. trying to push essentially to erase teaching the history that would explain what Juneteenth is? Yeah, it's, a, it's a complete and total disconnect. And, and Juneteenth is, of course, originally a Texas holiday. Yes. Because, because it, it, it we happened We celebrated in, in Colorado, too, but it was uh, an original absolutely, Texas holiday. Absolutely. And we're very proud of Juneteenth in, in Texas. And I saw a congressman Jackson Lee earlier. She's, she was very excited about what she was about to do in passing this bill. And we, we congratulate her for it. Um, but... But it is a complete and utter disconnect. I mean, we have such a history in, in Texas and across the country um, that we need to make sure young people learn about the history of racial discrimination in this in this in our state and across the country. Uh, Juneteenth is an important part of that. Uh, so a, a very pivotal moment in that history yeah. when the final slaves were emancipated in Texas. Um, but this critical race theory nonsense that Republicans are pushing across the country, including in Texas, Governor Abbott just signed yeah. the, the bill. In How Texas many uh, elementary and middle schools and high schools in, in Texas are teaching critical race theory? Uh, the, the bill author couldn't explain uh, yeah. the problem he was the, trying to solve. He doesn't know what it is. Uh, yeah, exactly. They, 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 they have no idea what it is. They have no idea what it is. Uh, State Representative Chris Turner, we get the fist bump. Thank, Thank you for Joy. being here. Welcome to being on set with us. Uh, that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.